Fly low, take them. You have fun? Good. Let's go home and make supper. Welcome to the ND Outdoors Podcast. All right, welcome to episode seven of the NDO Podcast. Uh, again, we have our host, myself, Kayla Bendel, and Casey Anderson. And this week we're going to talk about wildlife services. So we have our game management section leader and fur bear biologist, Steph Tucker, on, and then John Paulson with USDA Wildlife Services. Um, so, yeah, we'll get into a little fur bear and um, wildlife management stuff. But we'll start with you, Steph, if you just want to give your background and kind of what you do for the department. Sure. Um, good morning. Good afternoon. I don't know when this is going to yeah. be called. <laughs> Whenever they want to listen to it. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Yeah, I am uh, been our game management section leader for the past six, seven years. And so I oversee a group of bi- our, what you consider your species-specific biologists here at the Game and Fish Department. So like your deer biologists, your pheasant biologists. Um, and then I also wear another hat as our fur bear biologist for the state. And so really what that entails is uh, I, I spearhead the statewide population monitoring and harvest management of fur bears. And so it's anything that's primary value is its fur. So in North Dakota, that ranges from weasels all the way up to mountain lions and everything in between, like our really common fur bears, like coyotes and muskrats and things like that. And uh, we also get a lot into trapping and trapper education on the fur bear side of things because... One of the most efficient ways to take a lot of fur bears is trapping and not hunting. And so a lot of fur bear management and harvest management involves a lot of trapping as well. Awesome. And then we have John with us today, too. John, you want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, what is USDA APHIS Wildlife Services and then um, your position? And yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so USDA Wildlife Services is a, is a federal uh, agency tasked with uh, collaborating with many partners uh, to address wildlife-related problems in a science-based manner. Um, I'm currently the state director of USDA Wildlife Services for both the North Dakota and South Dakota program. Um, I've had a long career of about 32 years with the program and worked my way up from the uh, field operation level all the way up to uh, where I'm at currently, and it's uh, a great agency to work for and uh, and working with the many partners that we do, so. Um, John, yeah, speaking of the partners and things, you know, it's kind of, a, I don't know if it's unique, you cover more than just North Dakota in your realm, you cover what, North Dakota, South Dakota? Those two. Just yep. those two. Those two states. And so our partnership in North Dakota is North Dakota Game Fish, North Dakota Ag Department, and then USDA Wildlife Services. Yes, um, and I think that that cooperative agreement goes back to like 1995, um, around that time frame, um, and the, the state legislature um, made available funding to cooperate with our agency. One of the things about our federal program is that we are a cooperatively based program. In, in other words, we get funding from states and private entities to deal with wildlife-related damage. And like when people think of wildlife-related damage, just list off the numerous things that you guys deal with. Yeah, the list the list is long. Uh, there's no question. And, and like Steph said, there's some of the more common ones. I mean, uh, predator damage management is a big one in the state of North Dakota and South Dakota, uh, primarily coyotes related to livestock. Both sheep and cattle producers uh, periodically have issues, you know, related to coyote damage uh, at, at varying times of the year. And, and beaver damage is another big one in, in the state of North Dakota. We don't think of beaver being a real problem in a, in a prairie-based state, but we do have lots of issues with beaver and infrastructure and, you know, tree damage and plug-in culverts and, and a lot of things like that. Probably the, uh, the third big one is our blackbird damage management program. We deal a lot with sunflower producers that 
are experiencing damage in the fall. And, and it's kind of the perfect storm because as these blackbirds are migrating south, um, it happens to coincide with the ripening sunflowers, and thus you can uh, understand the conflict. And, and we use a, a wide variety of tools, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. We kind of we call it our integrated approach on any kind of wildlife damage management. And what I mean by that is it, it's a variety of tools, both non-lethal and lethal, to address some of these wildlife-related issues. And an analogy I always use is, you know, a mechanic can't fix your car with a 916th wrench only. It, it takes all the tools in the toolbox. And so uh, we utilize a lot of different tools to try to alleviate some of this damage. Mm-hmm. And one other thing would be the goose goose damage that we get sometimes in crops and things. You guys work with that as well. And We do, yeah. That's a, a really good point. Um, we have a very robust Canada goose population in the state of uh, North Dakota and and a lot of birds that breed in this state. Thus, they can cause you know issues. And, and typically, that is in the spring of the year because as these crops are uh, merging through the soil, it's they're green and they're very attractive to geese and, and goslings that are just hatching. And so... Uh, we use a lot of non-lethal methods to try to alleviate that damage. Every anything from pyrotechnics to propane cannons to uh, eagle effigies, uh, scare tactics, and then there's also the depredation permit process that uh, a landowner can apply for and uh, and utilize if they need to. Yeah, and that permit process is kind of interesting because of course it goes through the Fish and Wildlife Service, and then. And to even be able to qualify for a permit, they need to go through you guys first to work through all those non-lethal type of tools that might be in the toolbox and try to alleviate the situation that way before it gets to anything where we actually do some take to try to alleviate the damage that they've got on their place. Yeah, that's correct. Um, They work with us. They can call our our agency, our number at, in Bismarck here, and we'll disseminate it out to our field staff. They'll go out and meet one-on-one with the producer so we can look at the damage that's actually happening, verify it, and then provide the non-lethal tools to them to try. And if, they, uh, if that's successful, that's great, and we don't have to uh, euthanize any. But if it isn't successful, um, we work closely with your agency, Game and Fish Department, to uh, to work through the depredation permit process to allow them to do some take. Yeah, so, so some of these things, that just adds another partner, too, when you talk about we're adding a Fish and Wildlife Service permit and process to that. So we've got Ag Department, Game and Fish, USDA Wildlife Services, Fish and Wildlife Service all working on kind of one one thing, so it's... Yeah, it's a lot of moving parts a lot of times, but there is. And, and one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, the, the reason Fish and Wildlife Service gets involved in all those depredation permit processes is they deal with migratory birds. And so any bird that leaves the state, uh, doesn't spend the winter here, um, is you know overseen by the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so you're right, they're our third partner in that mix to, to help us navigate through that process mm-hmm. so speaking of some of the tools in the toolbox i know one thing that a lot of north dakotans whether it's ranchers farmers or hunters are aware of that you do is the coyote control um maybe let's just touch on how that process works i mean it's it's not that we go out and just deal with any coyote running across the landscape anytime but can you yeah, yeah, I, that's a that's a really good question, and so, you know, there's a lot that goes into the whole predator damage management program, and um, not that many years ago, we went through our NEPA analysis, the National Environmental Policy Act, to take a look at, uh, you know, are we doing things environmentally sound, biologically uh, safe, and we actually work on less than 5% of any of the, the land in North Dakota. And so when we get questioned once in a while, 
Well, you guys can can fly an airplane anywhere and shoot coyotes. That's not necessarily true at all. Um, so when a livestock producer has a an issue with coyotes, uh, whether it's killing their livestock, harassing the livestock, they contact us. We send one of our field specialists out there to meet with them, um, take a look at the problem, similar to the goose damage and, and beaver damage management program, and and we let them, their professional expertise, determine what tools are the best to alleviate that problem. And, and we do have a lot of different tools, um, everything from foothold traps to cable devices to, uh, to calling and shooting. We've got, you know, thermals that we use, uh, a, a device called an M44, which is the sodium cyanide that is highly restricted by EPA. And we do have uh, aerial, uh, the opportunity to, to use aircraft. And, and it is a wonderful tool for us because uh, we have a very open landscape in, in North Dakota. And with the conditions that we have right now with, with the snow, it allows us to, uh, to come in with an aircraft. But we don't work on any property that we don't have a signed agreement by that landowner or an adjacent landowner um, because... Steph will tell you that coyotes have a home range that don't necessarily all end up on one person's property. And so sometimes we have to get permission from the adjacent landowner to come and, and, and you know, get a signed agreement from them to allow us to go onto the property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so realistically, it's not because you heard coyotes howling. <laughs> that you guys are out there on the field working with them and seeing what, what kind of issues are happening before we just go out and... And try to alleviate a problem, but no, that that's a, that's a good point. We do get that. Um, mm-hmm. We saw a coyote. We heard a coyote. Um, you know, and for livestock producers who have historical loss issues, you know that that is a concern of theirs, and they do notify us. And that doesn't mean we're going to come running out there and, and try to take care of the problem because we only have nine full-time field staff in the whole state of North Dakota. So they got big districts. They got a lot on their plate, and so we prioritize obviously the loss, uh, the livestock loss issues first, and then you know work down the list. Um, you know we we've got a, a really healthy coyote population in the state of North Dakota. It, it's fluctuated over the years, and depending on you know the the location in the state, but some producers happen to have. Uh, they happen to live in an area that is just conducive to problems almost annually, and mm-hmm. and so we and sheep producers in particular, we work with a lot of sheep producers because that coyotes can affect them on a year-round basis. Not so much the cattle producers; mm-hmm. that's more of a narrow window uh, when they're calving, whether it be the spring or the fall, depending on when they're calving. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you a break, take a drink of coffee now, and move over to Steph. But um, with some of the work that these guys do, Steph and gals out there, um, a lot of times our, our fur taker, hunters, trappers, will wonder, you know, like oh, they're, they're extirpating the population or, or things like that. And realistically, can you touch on that? I mean, they're working in such a small area for one, and right. coyotes are awfully prolific critters. Right, <laughs> you know. By far and large, our most abundant fur bear in North Dakota, um, a habitat generalist that eat pretty much anything. They're found statewide. They're found in cities. Um, so it's interesting to actually look at wildlife services data. When our coyote population goes up, when we see our coyote population trending up with our surveys that we conduct with the Game and Fish Department, you'll see wildlife services complaints trend up at the same time. And so, not surprisingly, when there's more coyotes in the landscape, they have more problems. Now, it'd be great um, if fur harvesters could help, you know, landowners and producers uh, whenever they needed it, need it. But, you know, most fur harvest goes on during the prime fur season, and that's when fur harvesters want to go out, and, and those animals have the most value. And so, and that, and it, you know, it's a side hobby for a lot of fur harvesters to to take coyotes and things like that. And so... They can't just drop anything any time of the day or week and go out and help these producers <clears throat> solve that problem. And so we, we love it when producers can, you know, fix the problem themselves or use, 
you know, somebody in their area to help them solve problems and remove coyotes for them when they're having problems. But at the same time, uh, we know that's not going to cover everything. And so it's great that we have this partnership with Wildlife Services because uh, that would be a lot of complaints without them. And, and, and I, I don't know if John mentioned it, but they provide that through the funding through the US State Department of Agriculture. They provide that service to producers for free to go out and help remove them. And they're not just removing every single coyote they see on the landscape either wildlife service specialists are trained to remove that problem coyote the one that's causing the problem and and a depredating coyote on livestock that's a learned behavior from one coyote to the next generation and so if you can remove um, that behavior from those individuals they're less likely to pass on vast majority of coyotes are not cattle killers or sheep killers and so um, to be able to send somebody in there with the expertise to target those individuals uh, is great that we have that extra assistance when when fur harvesters can't help us out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, our our coyote season essentially is year round. Exactly. You just have a point where you have to buy a new license. Um, but yeah, you're right. And when when fur prices go up, we hear we hear more worry about right competition about that. You know. Um, and then during the prime fur season, right. You know what. Just right. give me kind of a window when that prime first season folks are out there looking for that sure. hide that might be worth the most. Right. So you're talking November, <laughs> generally speaking, November through February, they might still be good. And there's a lot of variability depending on weather and things like that and how, how fast their their prime pelt starts breaking down in late winter, early spring and things like that. But from November through February is most of our prime first season for coyotes. And, um, yeah, so it's just good that, you know, um, we have that extra assistance from wildlife services to do that. And like you said, our, our season is year-round because in no way, shape, or form do we have any evidence that either fur harvesters or wildlife services activities are having any impact on coyote populations in North Dakota. <laughs> and so coyote populations can withstand all that and then some, and, mm-hmm. and it's not going to impact them, whether the, you know, the population. It might locally help alleviate, and you'll you know, have fewer coyotes in, in a real small regional area for a short period of time until they fill that gap back in. But, but by and large, they're statewide, and, they're, and, and we do allow year-round harvest. You know, we essentially have the season year-round for things like coyotes because we know for harvesters don't have an impact on that population, and it prevents somebody like a producer having to get a special permit outside the first season um, to take that animal if they are having a problem. You know, we don't want to have to deal with all that either when so- we got something as abundant as coyotes. They can just go take care of the problem as they need to, no matter what time of year it is. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, Steph brought up that I'd like to touch on is, you know, most of, of our staff and wildlife services come from a fur harvesting background. So w- we understand the concept, and, and we don't want to compete against the private, you know, fur harvester. And so... We also work closely with Steph and understand coyote biology and, and the fact that there's a lot of dispersal going on at this time of the year and, and establishing home ranges in that January, February time frame. And so we, we really, we know that is important to us when it comes to predator damage management around a sheep, you know, rancher, a cattle rancher. And so targeting... Um, that after the prime fur season makes the most sense to us because let the private fur trapper do what they can in, in the prime fur season. And also, those coyotes have an established territory in February and after that. And if we target those animals then, there isn't as much you know, filling in the void behind them like there would be this time of the year. So it, it, it really... Uh, we try to, you know, restrain from a, a lot of our busy activity until February and after, uh, and it just makes the most sense to us biologically and and to help these producers in the best way. So, John, when you guys are taking critters, you're picking them up on the landscape, right? Typically, if you can get to them, um, especially aerial gunning and stuff like that. Are are the furs being utilized if they can be? Yes, actually, there is a, a state law in, in the legislature that allows us to utilize that resource. Um, and so if we do work during that prime fur season and we do take uh, some animals, it does allow us to 
to sell those and put that money back into the program to a certain limit. And I can't remember exactly what that is. I think it's uh, $7,500 a year, 15000 a biennium, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's good. You know, we're, we're always proponents of no matter how we have to harvest an animal or for what reason an animal gets harvested, that as much of it gets used as as possible. Um, and then it goes back into the program, so that helps. You bet. You talked about determining, like, which coyotes are the source of the problem. Can you, like, does that just involve a lot of scouting prior to and, like, observation, or how, how can they determine which coyotes? That, that's a really good question, Kayla. And, and you know, we have, um, you know, our experts in the field, our wildlife specialists are good at what they do, um, and they spend every day doing it, and they – I guess it's a learned behavior with them too that they they understand um, through vocalizations and through looking at sign on the ground and working with the the producer. Um, they have really good ways of of determining where the coyotes might be coming from that are causing the issues, and uh, and they really uh, try to target those animals like Steph said fascinating yeah <laughs> I like and that's uh, their job <laughs> yeah I, know, right. um, I hope they like that that it's their job too what do you think John yeah. well I, I will I will tell you that um, a lot of them have had opportunities to go elsewhere you know um, move up the chain most of most of our field specialists have either a four-year degree in, in wildlife uh, management or even master's degrees and and they have opted to stay working operationally in the field and I make the assumption that's because they love what they do and 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 I I agree with that too because I started in the field and there is a real sense of satisfaction helping people with problems and at the end of the day uh, even in my position I get to shuffle papers and look at a computer and and do what I can to grease the skids to keep this program going in a good direction, but I'm part of that team helping with people with problems. So, well, Yeah, and I think most of us, when we went into a biology degree or something, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I didn't picture myself as doing the job I'm doing right now as the wildlife division chief. It's kind of like, no, I wanted to be in the field. That's why I went into that kind of arena. So, yeah, when you get the one that you like, it's, it's awful hard to move out of it. You always wanted to be a podcast host. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> I'll never forget. I got a call one time from a gal who was wondering if I could visit with her. I think it was her daughter or son that was in high school about what I do as a wildlife biologist and if they could come job shadow me. And I said, well, I I sit behind my computer 95% of the time. <laughs> and she's like, but I thought you're a wildlife biologist. And I was like, I am. <laughs> 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 you didn't bring her into the lab and have her go through all the necropsies and stuff of fur bears. Yeah. Definitely not an eight to five job mm-hmm. either. Yeah. That, that, especially with our field staff. I mean, with the tools that they use, it's a lot of times it's early mornings, late evenings, sometimes middle of the night. I mean, they have to camp out there with the sheep to get that target animal that's causing problems. And so they are, very, they're on a maxi flex schedule. They're very flexible with what they do, and uh, but they enjoy it. Lots of noon naps if you've been out <laughs> all night. <Yeah. laughs> so, Steph, working with these folks, what information sharing as far as biologically goes on with some of these fur bears that are being, you know, taken or or things like that? Right. Yeah, we get together a couple times a year to share information. You know, I. Uh, give updates to them on what some of our fur bear population trends are doing, um, if there's any changes in our regulations that we foresee. Uh, and also on wildlife services end, like I said, you know, I, I get to see all of their trend data on the number of properties they're working on, the number of coyotes they remove, the number of contacts they make, uh, the number of incidental other things they catch, besides, you know, say they're targeting coyotes to do a depredation removal there, you know, and, and maybe they catch a fox or a badger or something like that. They, they report all that to us. And I have to say, as far as the non-target captures go, they're really good at what they do. I'm surprised on a statewide level, considering they're trapping and taking stuff year-round, 
uh, that the non-target take is as little as it is in North Dakota because a lot of these fur bearers, um, you know, the equipment and the baits and the tractants they use to try and bring an animal into a trap set or things like that, you know, you, you try and be as species specific and target that species as possible, but you can't remove you can't remove all risk of catching something else all the time. And so, uh, yeah, they're very good at that, uh, reducing non-target take in those devices as well. So that's great. But so it's it's across the board. It's infra- information sharing. Um, you know, I get a lot of calls where folks say, you know, I I got something killed my calf last night, or I got something attacked my horse, and uh, it is. You know, I, I'm really appreciative that I can have, you know, give them wildlife services mm-hmm. phone number and say, here, this is who you need to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll come out and do an investigation and help you with your problem. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about, you know, getting hunters to help some of these landowners as well. We have what kind of ways, I guess, besides just hunters getting to know landowners um, and being out there talking to them. I don't, I don't know too many landowners that would be having a coyote problem that wouldn't allow a hunter to go on and try to harvest that, <laughs> try to harvest that animal before they need to go farther. But um, we have what we call a coyote catalog. Can you explain how that kind of works? Sure. Essentially, we had some landowners who we were hearing from that don't didn't um, meet the criteria for actually having livestock problems. They're just a landowner or producer who sees a hear, hears a lot of coyotes in their area and is uncomfortable with the number of coyotes around. But they've had nobody knock on their door, you know, to come ask to hunt or trap there. And they don't meet the criteria for wildlife services personnel to go out and provide assistance because there's no loss or livestock damage yet. Um, And so that's a perfect spot, you know, for a fur harvester, a coyote caller, or a trapper to go in um, and meet a landowner. And and we kind of match those up. So it's match.com for coyote hunters and landowners, (laughs) kind of. And... um, we don't get a lot of landowners sign up for it every year. I would say the last couple of years were somewhere between 10 and 20 landowners sign up. Uh, we, we have several hundred trappers and hunters that sign up every year interested. And kind of so what happens is the, the hunter or trapper will tell us when they sign up for it which counties they're willing to travel to to hunt or trap coyotes. And then when a landowner from that county, if a landowner from one of those counties signs up, we'll, we'll randomly match up those those hunters and those landowners. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, hopefully I would hope that a a long-term relationship is established maybe between some of those landowners and coyote hunters or trappers. And and so we never hear from them again after that because, you know, they made a connection there and and they have a place to go hunt and and they have the help they need. But, yeah, it's not surprising. The thing I think um, that was really apparent when we started the coyote catalog is that the areas of the state – where we have landowners asking for hunters or trappers is the same areas of the state where we have hunters and trappers least likely to say they're willing to travel <laughs> to. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, l- yeah, long ways in the wintertime right, travel. Right, just yeah. kind of out really rural, a long way from an uh, urban center, you know, not not a lot of public land in those counties or whatever, so it doesn't attract hunters or trappers to that area to begin with. And so, yeah, it's just mm-hmm. we're trying to, you know, help make that connection there. Have you seen, like, landowners stop signing up for it because they found their match? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Initially, when we started the program, we did survey um, the landowners and got a little bit of feel for that. But you're right, Kayla. You know, they sign up maybe one year or two years, and then then we don't hear from them again. And and so uh, hopefully they've made that contact and got some people coming out and helping them out with those situations. I think another question you mentioned we get is um, whether fur harvesters can get access to where Wildlife Services is doing removal. So, right, just we, to clear that right. up. Right. So sometimes we get asked, you know, I, I, a fur harvester wants to go into an area and he and he wants to avoid wasting, you know, in his in his or her mind time, you know, an area where Wildlife Services has been very active, you know. And so, John, if you want to, yeah. So that that's. Uh, Actually, any cooperative agreement that we have with a private landowner is is protected under the Privacy Act. And so we can't give out um, individual names of landowners. Um, obviously, if we're using an aircraft, it, it's pretty obvious where we're, where we're working, and a lot of people see that. Um, you know, we can give general locations, but we can't 
can't give out people's names on, on where we're working. And like I indicated before, on any given year, it's it's we work on between three and five percent of the land in North Dakota, and that leaves a lot of other mm-hmm. um, property out there available for the private uh, yeah. fur harvester. And plus, you know, with with some of the tools that you're using, you know, it, it gets important to make sure that you know you're for one, you're you're targeting these certain critters, and you get those critters, um, and so that doesn't get jockeyed around with other people but i mean when you're flying an airplane looking for coyotes and stuff it's probably a good idea that you know somebody else isn't out there necessarily um chasing those same coyotes and so absolutely and and that that comes with coordination with the with the landowner you know um some of the landowners uh like you said casey most of them are are really good about you know any time of the year letting private fur harvesters come in and to utilize the resource on their property even if we still do work on that property um and, and that's that's not an issue with us as long as it isn't at the exact same time that we're there we're working there and and most of the time when we're doing those uh kind of activities it's it's after the prime fur season for the mm-hmm. most part uh, because coyotes start to lose primeness in in february they get rubbed and value goes down and and unfortunately there's not a lot of value in coyotes right now period but right yeah yeah the fur market in general has has decreased quite a bit over the last few years maybe just hit on that since anybody who's interested in taking fur fur bears is gonna be maybe listening <laughs> yeah most most probably avid fur harvesters are aware that you know the fur market is an international market and so there's a lot of things going on in the world right now that are negatively impacting the the purchase and the movement of furs around the world. You know, China's a, a large purchaser of fur and, and a large end market for fur is Russia. And so there's just a lot of upheaval in those areas of the world. And so the, the fur market has gone down. We were kind of riding a high wave with coyotes uh, the last few years, particularly in North Dakota and Western population, further west of North Dakota for the trim trade on, on winter parkas. Uh, some manufacturers in Canada were heavily using coyotes for the trim trade, and and some of, and they moved away from that. They moved away from using for, for some of their products. And so that, that market has disappeared, and then with the, you know, the upheaval in the world, that just kind of drives prices down there, uncertainty, and nobody wants to really uh, stick their neck out and pay a lot of money for furs and end up with a whole pile of furs they can't get rid of in the end. Because most of the fur still does go in um, to garments in the world. Most of it is still used for garments, and there's a lot of countries that wear a lot of fur. And it's a, it's a natural resource. It's a renewable resource that we consider. It's very green. And so um, just because, you know, maybe in the United States you don't see a lot of people wearing fur anymore, that's not necessarily the case worldwide. There's still a lot of um, wearing of fur garments worldwide. Yeah, one thing that I thought was interesting is when the, what it was about 10 years ago, muskrat prices got really high. Yep. And for some lucky reason, it coincided with a high water year and a, and a large muskrat population, especially in North and South Dakota. And they were using it, weren't they using them in China for like padding in shoes? Yeah, so China was the big end market for muskrats back then. And essentially, they view it as a cheaper form of mink. You know, it's a short furred fur bearer, and and but it's very similar looking to mink, and so like so they use it for a wide variety of things, and and so they were just gobbling it up. And you're right, it coincided with a high population year for us here in North Dakota. So it's interesting to see in our data, you know, our fur buyers data, you know, that blip, you know, because majority of the years coyotes dominate our fur market in North Dakota, and then for a year or two there, it was all muskrats, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just kind of in, in the middle of that. Yeah, I think my. My boys and I, we trapped enough muskrats in our pasture for them to buy their first 22, you know. <laughs> so wildlife services, you know, you, we talked a lot about the, the uh, professional hunter-trapper side of things that you guys are involved in with wildlife damage, but you also are connected with USDA Veterinary Services, and we collaborate a lot on some of these wildlife diseases. Can you just... Talk a little bit about how that your role works in that. Yeah, <clears throat> that's uh, a whole different avenue of, of wildlife services. And 
we are part of USDA, and under USDA, we fall under the branch of APHIS, which is Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. And under APHIS, uh, Wildlife Services falls as well as Veterinary Services and, and PPQ, or Plant Protection Quarantine. Um, veterinary Services have uh, an area of veterinarian in charge in, in each state, responsible in each state, and we do work with those uh, individuals on disease-related issues. And, and currently right now, obviously, high-path avian influenza is a big thing, in, uh, actually nationwide. And so we work very closely with, with vet services. We, we are doing a lot of data collection. Um, and that's our role in wildlife services. We've been helping out with, with data collection on, uh, on the high-path AI thing and uh, and a lot of other diseases too we've collaborated with uh, your agency in the past on TB um, you know utilizing our expertise to when we were collecting coyotes anyway utilizing those that resource to test for TB um, and and we do a lot of other things uh, disease related feral swine is is a big thing on the landscape we don't hear a lot about it in North Dakota because we just don't have the habitat and, and maybe the population of feral swine and, and most of our um, feral swine are escaped domestic swine that uh, we work closely with the Board of Animal Health and uh, try to you know work with the producers to get these uh, pigs back in confinement and, and if they can't do that in a certain amount of time and then we have to go in and remove them because there is a huge concern, um, not only with the disease aspect, because uh, feral pigs can be a, a huge carrier of several different diseases, but uh, also the prolific nature of pigs. Um, we know that they can breed more than one time a year, and they can survive in our landscape up here. We've seen them survive in cattail sloughs, and... Uh, so we take that real serious working with uh, Board of Animal Health when we get complaints, and we probably get half a dozen a year. Mm -hmm. um, we don't always have to remove pigs every time, but sometimes we do. But, but that's certainly a concern of ours. And, uh, but we, we work closely with that aspect of the Ag Department, too, and your agency on dealing with, you know, disease-related issues. I, you know, we've helped out with some CWD stuff um, in the past, and we'll continue doing that and collaborating with you guys in, in the future because we, we, uh, we're all residents here in North Dakota, too, and we uh, call this our home, and we want to make it the best we can. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, we've done... Well, when high path avian influenza, this new strain anyway, there's been a couple different years here now in the last ten that we've that we've worked together on it. But when it was coming through, um, you know, getting together and trying to get as many samples as we can out on the landscape, and then between our field staff and your field staff, it allows us more more opportunity to respond to some of those situations where we can get samples and things like that. You guys also, what's amazing to me is like your your disease person that you have. You'll get deployed like all kinds of weird places to, you know, because because like I said, you USDA, you're you're federal, you cover the whole United States and provinces, and sometimes there's a all hands on deck situation. Can you explain some of yeah. that? Yeah, I can. A couple examples that uh, come to mind, um, and we do have a full time disease biologist. We're very fortunate to have that in, in North Dakota. Not not every state uh, wildlife services program has a full time disease biologists, many of them do. Um, but yeah, they, and, and that is also collaboration with veterinary services. So for example, Newcastle's disease, there was an outbreak in California um, more than one year. In backyard chickens. <coughs> backyard chickens. <Yeah. laughs> and, and so they deployed our disease biologists to come and work with those chicken owners because they needed to be removed or euthanized mm -hmm. and and of course there's a process that goes through that um and and then more recently um because of asf african swine fever concern in the the 
Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. And so we have been working really closely with vet services um, to depopulate feral swine from those locations because the concern is it only takes one of those pigs with that disease to bring to the United States, and, and we've got a major problem. So our disease biologist was deployed to Puerto Rico to help out with that issue there as well. So, yeah, a lot a lot of different missions and, and TDYs <laughs> that they do. So you can get into that career if you want to kind of bounce around the country. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the work's not real fun, but, right. but uh, yeah, you can... You can see some of the see some of the country that way, you know. Talking about feral swine, of course, one of the things that as game and fish department that we're always um, worried about with feral swine, and we've seen it in other states, is just the sheer amount of damage that they can cause to habitat, uh, you know, crop producers and things like that. And you know, we get we get the question all the time: Well, why can't we just hunt them? And, and it's one of those things where if you look at history, hunters are really good at preserving what they want to have on the landscape. I mean, most conservation in the United States was, you know, come out of hunters', hunters back pockets in some way, shape, or form. And, and these pigs get really smart, too, once you start hunting them. If you, if you need, if it's a situation where you need to remove them, you can educate some really fast if you don't get them all. And so... You know that's one of the one of the reasons why we work close with Board of Animal Health and you folks to try to take care of those problems before they cause a big problem. If anybody wants to see the damage pigs can cause, they can come to my place. Somebody <laughs> had pigs in my pole barn before we had the place, and I've got toothpicks holding up my pole barn. You know, <laughs> chewing around the bottom. I've replaced some of them, but it's like it's amazing the kind of damage they can cause, and it doesn't take very many. No, you're, you're exactly right. I, a, a real good friend of mine is, is my counterpart in Texas, and um, I see firsthand through him the damage that these pigs can cause to agriculture and even in urban settings. I mean, they'll come in to the cities, and they can cause damage. They're primarily nocturnal, um, and like you say, some of that becomes learned behavior maybe. But, uh, yeah, they're very prolific. They can, uh, they can repopulate real quickly. They don't have a lot of uh, predators, uh, high-end predators that cause them a lot of issues. And so man has is, is kind of been tasked with, we've got a problem, we've got to do something. And so through Congress, there's been money available to deal with this on a nationwide basis. We're very fortunate in North Dakota that we have a very – small population, if any, um, at any given time. But like you say, it's important that we, we get on them quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd, I'd just add one other reason, you know, because we get the question a lot, why can't we just hunt them? Why can't we just, you know, take care of them? But for one, we don't know how long that pig's been out. It could be the show pig that just got out 15 minutes ago, you know. And so working with the Board of Animal Health, they work through trying to figure out whose pigs those are, can we get them back in, like you said before, you know, can we get them back, you know, to the owner that maybe is making a living on this and doesn't even know that this pig or these pigs are out, and so we can't just willy-nilly go out and start start taking them out, you know. So I feel like we should give Steph some more questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I was just going to have her cover just anything – Changes are relevant to fur bear seasons, but yeah, then we're sitting pretty good unless you guys wanted to cover anything else. You know, I, I think Casey brought up a, a good point. I'll, I'll just touch on one other thing. You know, wildlife services, uh, there's a lot of different things that our agency does. Um, we're, we're very fortunate in the fact that we've got uh, three air bases in, the two, in both North and South Dakota, and we have full-time biologist on all three bases Um, and that's a hundred percent funded by the air force and they see the need on alleviating potential damage um, at a lot of these airfields and airports And, and we have a lot of presence on almost all the major airports in the u.s and a lot of the air bases now and just recently you might have uh heard that there was a bird strike 
at uh, Minot with two Sandhill cranes, a B-52, ingested two Sandhill cranes in one of the, the engines. Um, and that can be a serious problem um, depending on if it would have been another engine, it could have been a, a real serious issue. So we, we work very closely with the uh, safety offices at these bases to try to alleviate wildlife damage. And it might be uh, harassment of, of birds off their sewage ponds or, you know, keeping snow geese away from the exterior high fence so they're not posing a threat to incoming or outgoing aircraft. We're trying to keep the pilots and the planes as safe as we possibly can. We do have... Uh, a raptor translocation project so we we can uh, trap raptors that may be posing a threat to aircraft and uh, relocate them you know up to 50 miles and we've proven that uh, that can be effective and they don't typically don't return to their, their province so that's that's one thing as far as airports and air bases and that's ever expanding in our program the other thing is we receive a lot of calls from urban wildlife damage, and more recently, the last few years, uh, ground squirrels. And these are Richardson's ground squirrels, and, and a lot of times we get the call, we got gophers. And, and they're not a true gopher. Um, mm-hmm. The only true gopher is a pocket gopher, we know that. But they are ground squirrels. Uh, they get a lot of different names. But uh, they their population has done really well, and these urban environments have provided them good habitat. And so we work closely with the cities. And, and again, they, they pay for um, any work that we would do, whether it be um, we do provide technical assistance, but op- operational control as well to help them out uh, uh, alleviating some of that ground squirrel damage. And so I just wanted to touch on a couple other yeah. things. Yeah, well, I know I learned a lot about <laughs> Wildlife services. Um, I think we'll maybe just wrap up with if Steph. We got a lot of our fur bear seasons opening here, already probably already opened. Um, just any things to consider new this year, new regs, or just points you want to touch on? Right. So most of our fur bear seasons are open now. All of them are open now. Um, we we have kind of some staggered openings for fur bears early on as they start priming up. We open those seasons for things like mountain lions and weasels and muskrats and and things like that. And then we have a whole bunch of uh, fur bear seasons that open up right after deer gun season closes. And so we just had a bunch of seasons that opened up recently, our fisher trapping season, our river otter trapping season. Uh, People can now use dogs to pursue mountain lions and bobcats. And so uh, prime fur season is in full swing. uh, and, And so trappers are out after them, trappers and hunters. There was no major changes to our regulations really this year. Uh, just remind folks that uh, if you're using cable devices or snares, that they need to be tagged no matter where you leave them. Uh, if you leave any traps on our wildlife management areas, they should be tagged uh, with your name, address, and telephone number or your equipment red ID number that you get from the, uh, your account online. And then also, uh, we this new this year is if you, you know if you get a mountain lion or a bobcat east of Highway 83 or a fish or a river otter, you're required to report that to the Game and Fish Department in a timely manner so that we can keep track of that harvest as it's going on. And now, new this year, you can you can report that harvest through your online account through the Game and Fish Department website. So if you log in there, there'll be a little link down there that says new registrations. You click that, you'll have an option for fur bear registration, and, and you can go ahead and tell us if you caught a fish or a river otter right online without having to actually get somebody on the phone or go to a district office to report that. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on, you guys. Um, I think a cool aspect um, that we maybe haven't covered much in some of our other communication mm-hmm. platforms. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being it. on. Yeah. Yeah. Was that John? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we got <laughs> We got John into the podcast world. Now he's going to have to start yeah, listening to him. I know. <laughs> I told Kayla the only four I've listened to are the four that you guys have done. <laughs> I've tried to listen to a few others before, but I don't ever think I got through a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. I did buy some truffle salt the other day after listening yeah, to so your one food podcast. I was thinking about that. I was like, do you think his daughter really says, like, my favorite food is, an- what was it, antelope something and truffle salt yeah. or something? Yeah, antelope loin <laughs> and steak and truffle salt. So... My my wife listens to the podcast. She tried to listen to him while I was around, and I'm like, I, I don't need to listen to myself again. Like, it's 
So she listens to these podcasts, and there was this this Amazon box that came, and uh, I was waiting for a couple things, and she had ordered it. So I opened the box, and it's got a meat ten one of those meat tenderizers <laughs> that that he talked about, and the truffle salt in it, and I was like. I just opened my Christmas present. Oh, no. I can't believe I did that. Oh, no. Somebody's been listening to the podcast. So. Maybe but we'll see a relationship between truffle salt yeah. market and our podcast. Yeah. But I do have a venison ham in brine right now. Okay. So it's going to get smoked right. this weekend. Mm-hmm. All right. So everyone's learning something. That's right. All right, we'll get into department droppings. Uh, so muzzle loader season opens on November 25th, so this will have already aired, but um, and goes through December 11th. Yeah, and no, we've got lots of fur bear and trapping seasons open. And then Casey's been making the circuit of advisory board meetings, so just a good opportunity to kind of hear from the department on what's happening, um, ask questions, uh, just, yeah, kind of get a local perspective and and have so a lot of our staff there for if you have any questions or comments or input so those the circuit of those has already started um but a few that will be coming after this airs is the bismarck one on november 30th uh, which will also be live streamed so if you aren't able to make it to your local one or just prefer to watch it from the couch um mm-hmm. you could tune into that one virtually from our website which other are you at the, any of the other ones casey uh yeah so i'll be in cavalier um and I'll be at the Bismarck one. Uh, Bill Haas will cover the New Rockford one. And so, yeah, we're kind of kind of splitting them up, but um, reduce a little travel for each individual. But, but yeah, it's a good a good place for people to give us input. Um, you know, it is input that we use and value as far as things. You know, like how did deer season go? What did you guys and gals see out there? You know, what uh, what are you seeing with any other hunting seasons? You know, pheasant populations and all that kind of stuff. So. I mean, it's information that we, we gather and we can use to kind of ground truth what we're seeing with surveys and, and things like that that we do. So, Other than that, just make sure you're careful out there with some early ice forming, um, whether you're trapping or ice fishing or um, walking the edge of sloughs for pheasants, whatever, just uh, make sure to be careful out there. Yeah, now that we've dropped the department droppings, get off the pot and get outdoors. <laughs>